Here we go. I think our seats are right here, Bill. Wow, these are great seats, Lamar. Yeah, they really are. They, they belong to an old friend of mine. He offers them to me all the time, but I'm not a huge baseball fan. I decided to take him up on it uh, this afternoon if you were available because I do like to come every now and then. And For me, baseball games are a great place to carry on a conversation. <laughs> baseball is not exactly a thrill a minute. I know what you mean. I played baseball in high school and I loved it, but watching it is a different story. It's beautiful out here, though, and like you say, it'll be easy to discuss our next hot topic. Speaking of which, you uh, remember our last conversation about the question of uh, evil and suffering? You mean out at the lake? Yes, you mentioned uh, heaven and Jesus, as I recalled, as the answer when we were talking about the ultimate solution to the question of suffering. Yes, uh, I think Jesus Christ is the only hope. But doesn't it seem a bit presumptuous to assume that if there is a God in heaven, that uh, Jesus is the only way? Isn't isn't that a bit uh, presumptuous? More, I know a lot of people who think that God is like the top of a mountain. There are many paths to the summit, and what's important is not the particular path, but whether or not you're climbing. Yeah, that's pretty much the way I feel. Kind of like any detergent will get your clothes clean. (laughs) There must be billions of people in the world who are as sincere or even more sincere in the pursuit of their path to God as you and I are in ours. I agree that there are many sincere people in other religions, But just because a person's sincere doesn't mean they're right. For instance, I heard a story about a wrecking company that took an order to destroy a house. Well, they started in the morning, and by the end of the afternoon, they'd completed the job successfully. And the only problem was that they got the last two numbers in the address mixed up and destroyed the wrong house. They were sincere, but they were wrong. What a fiasco. Are you saying that sincerity is irrelevant or unimportant in matters of faith? No, Simply that sincerity isn't the first question. Truth is, it's possible to be completely sincere and yet completely wrong. If you find the truth, it's wonderful to respond to it with sincerity, but sincerity is not a proof of truth. Well, Bill, you're talking as if truth were something objective, that it's discoverable with certainty, absolute. I think one of the great insights of the times we live in now is that what is true for you may not be true for me and vice versa. Or what's true for us may not be true for someone on the other side of the world or at another time in history. Well, for instance. Well, a thousand years ago, people would have nearly all agreed that the earth was flat. But that's not true for us. But, Lamar, hasn't the earth been spherical from the beginning? We don't believe that it was flat then and later changed to spherical. No, of course not. I I guess I'm just saying that everybody thought it was flat. You mean that they were sincerely wrong? Well, yeah, I guess I see your point, but I really have trouble buying the idea of absolute truth. Are you talking about absolute truth of ideas or of morals? Well, either one, I suppose. I I think truth is relative. I have a hard time with the idea of absolute truth. seems to me that history and culture show us that over the years, people who believed that their way was the right way, the truth— They were the very people who turned out to be racist. They created the Holocaust. They persecuted people who believed differently during the Inquisition, for instance, and they've hunted witches and just created misery. Lamar, how sure are you that there is no such thing as absolute truth or absolute right or wrong? Well, I'm pretty sure, Bill. Are you absolutely sure? Uh Uh-oh. I think I see a trap there. (laughs) 
How could you be absolutely sure that there are no absolutes? Is that what you're getting at? Yes. In reality, I think relativism is not just a problem in self-defeating logic. I think it's unworkable and unlivable. You mean in the real world? Why do you say that? I had a conversation one time with a guy about an affair he was having with a married woman. He explained to me why he felt he was a much better match for the woman than her husband, how he felt like the kids would adjust even though they were hurting badly and, and so on. Then I carefully uh, asked him whether he felt there was anything morally wrong about what he was doing. What did he say to that? Well, he said that no one else has the right to say that what anyone else does is wrong. In effect, I think he was telling me that truth and morality are relative and that there is no such thing as absolute right or wrong. So um, I asked him if he thought what Hitler did was wrong. Whoa, good question. What did he say to that? He said he disagreed with what Hitler did, but he wouldn't say it was wrong. <laughs> Goodness, sounds like he was trying to squirm out of one of your traps or maybe even one of his own. Actually, I, I was surprised at his answer. What do you mean you can't say what Hitler did was wrong, that you only disagree? So uh, I tried one more moral question. What if you open a door and you see a woman torturing her six-month-old baby, burning him all over with a cigarette? Did he try to wriggle out of that one, too? No, I, I think he realized he couldn't support his position. I didn't press it, but I think he did see the problem. So is that what you mean by relativism being unlivable? Yes, exactly. All the things most relativists hate and down deep think to be despicable and evil can only be truly wrong if there is such a thing as absolute truth. Well, it's hard to disagree with that logic. But what I'm worried about is the narrowness of people I've met who believe in absolute truth. Now, do you mean narrowness or, or narrow-mindedness? Because I, I think there is a difference. Well, narrow-mindedness, I guess, and, and especially their intolerance of the people who disagree with them. It's impossible to have an intelligent discussion with many of them. They don't bother listening or trying to understand anybody else's position. You mean they're so narrow-minded they can look through a keyhole with both eyes at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> right. Just one lens and a sunglass is all that's required. Exactly. Well, I've had some of those same frustrating discussions with people like that. But I recently read someone quoting Aristotle. Oh, yeah. Aristotle Onassis? <laughs> no, not the Greek shipping tycoon, the Greek philosopher. Oh, yeah. There were two of them. Well, what'd he say? Well, Aristotle said that the opposite of a vice is not a virtue but another vice, an opposite vice, and that the virtue is in the middle. Uh-oh, you're getting in deep again. What do you mean by that? Well, for example, what's the opposite of cowardice? Uh, courage, I guess. That's what I said. But Aristotle said that the opposite of cowardice is foolhardy brashness. So you have the vice called cowardice at one extreme and the vice called brashness at the other extreme with the virtue of courage right in the middle. That's interesting. You got another one? Well, if stinginess is a vice, what is its opposite? Well, I guess generosity would be the obvious answer, but that's the same mistake I made last <laughs> time. Uh, let's see. What about uh, extravagance? Uh, in other words, giving away more than you should or more than someone else needs or giving them more than is good for them. Bullseye. The two opposite vices are stinginess and extravagance, with generosity being the virtue in the middle. That's interesting stuff, but uh, I'm not exactly sure where this fits into our discussion. <laughs> well, we both agree that narrow-minded repression is bad. That's a vice at one extreme. The vice at the other extreme is soft-headed indulgence. Tolerance is in between. So while I agree that 
narrow-mindedness is wrong, I think that soft-headed indulgence is an equally bad mistake. Well, eliminate this for me. Can you give me an example of what soft-headed indulgence is? Well, how about the idea of thinking that all religions are equally valid? You mean you think the idea you mentioned before of all religions leading to God, like various paths going up a, a mountain to the top, that would be an example of soft-headed indulgence? Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, I do. Wow, I actually uh, like that analogy when you first <laughs> mentioned it uh, when we first sat down because it seems so accepting. Well, it is accepting, but it's accepting things that can't be true. They're views that clearly contradict each other. Well, now, hang on. I've, I've always felt that the religions were really basically all saying the same thing, like be nice to your neighbor and be honest, etc. There can't be any contradiction in that. Well, first off, all the religions don't teach that. Some religions taught the sacrifice of children into the fire belly of an idol, or hatred and vengeance to enemies, whereas some teach a response of forgiveness and love. Some teach a man that a wife is merely a plaything he owns, while others teach him to honor her as a spiritual equal. Some teach ritual prostitution or multiple wives, while others teach monogamy. Some religions teach you shouldn't help a crippled beggar because he's reaping his karmic debt, while others teach that acts of charity to the needy are rewarded by God. Are you saying that the major religions differ radically in their, in their basic ethics? No. Murder, rape, stealing, and lying are, are pretty universally condemned. I'm only saying that there's more diversity, even on the surface, than most people realize. Now, when you look beneath the surface and look at the foundational belief systems, that's when the huge contradictions emerge. Uh, such as? The difference between Hinduism and Judaism, for instance, uh, in their view of God. A pantheistic Hindu believes that all is God. There is no God outside the world who created it. You and I are God. Pain and suffering are just an illusion like we've talked about before. I see. You remind me, Bill, did you hear what the Hindu said to the guy at the hot dog stand? <laughs> no, I didn't. He says, make me one with everything. <laughs> That's pretty good. The Hindu believes he's one with God, or as you say, uh, one with everything. Judaism says, no, God and the world are not identical. There's only one God who made the world. This God exists prior to and independent of the world. It's actually like a painter in a painting. You can learn something about an artist by looking at his painting, but he exists independently of the painting. These two contradictory views of Hinduism and Judaism can't both be true according to the law of non-contradiction. Is that a state law or federal law? <laughs> Neither. It's a universal law. Sorry, but I must have missed the law of non-contradiction somewhere along the way. Uh, what does the statute say? Well, the law simply says this. If two or more statements contradict each other, they cannot both be true. Either A is true and B is false, B is true and A is false, or both A and B are false. But they both can't be true. Now, wait a minute. Can't, for instance, two people do a math problem two different ways and both arrive at the correct answer? Yep. Happens all the time. But where's the contradiction? If there's no contradiction between A and B, they both can be right because the law doesn't apply. Well, then when would the law of non-contradiction apply, Bill? Well, suppose your neighbor says that 10 times 10 equals 150, and you say... No, Jim, 10 times 10 equals 100. Now the law applies because there's a real contradiction. Either Jim's right and you're wrong, or you're right and Jim's wrong, 
or you're both wrong. But you both can't be right. And in this instance, of course, you're right. Okay, so you're saying that since they contradict each other, that Hinduism and Judaism cannot both be right about their definition of God. But, Bill, what if they're both wrong? Well, that is one of the logical options. What's irrational and illogical is to say that they're both right. Well, since I know you believe Christianity is true, you believe then that the other religions have it all wrong and that only Christianity has it right. No, I don't think other religions have it all wrong. There are some things that Jesus and Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad agree on. I think there are some true statements and beliefs in nearly all religions. C.S. Lewis said that when he moved from atheism to Christianity, he was able to take a much more liberal view of the various religions. When he was an atheist, he said he had to believe that all religions are wrong all through, that the main point in all the religions is a huge mistake, and that the vast majority of the people throughout history have been wrong about the one thing that mattered most to them. But when he became a Christian, he came to believe that all these religions, and even the strangest ones, contained some hint of the truth. So he believed that all religions were equally valid? No. He believed that they might be right in some areas, but that where they differed from Christianity, they were wrong at those points. He used an example of arithmetic, that there's only one right answer to a sum and all the other answers are wrong. But, of course, some wrong answers are closer to being right than others. But isn't that position awfully narrow? Like, here's the truth, and if you differ on this, you're wrong. But, Lamar, truth is narrow. The instruction on my car's instrument panel says, use unleaded fuel only. Why not leaded fuel? Why not diesel? For that matter, why not water? I'd save a lot of money. Or take flying an airplane. You flew in Vietnam, right? Yeah, I sure did. On a typical mission, how far would you fly? Hundreds of miles? Well, yeah, hundreds and hundreds. Okay, when you returned to base, how wide was the runway? Uh, 150 feet. Why? What if you decided one day that the world was large and that 150 feet of pavement was too narrow and restrictive, and you decided to land somewhere off the pavement? That particular configuration on that airplane, the landing gear would have sunk into the ground, the airplane would have flipped on its back, it would have pinned me in, and it wouldn't have been a pretty scene, but it wouldn't have mattered much to me because I'd have been a pile of ashes. Real life is like that, and truth is narrow. If you don't land on the runway, you die. Bill, I can't argue with the logic of what you're saying, but neither can I get away from the fact that so many of the people who believe that the truth is narrow are so intolerant of others. Have you not experienced or been the brunt of someone else's intolerance? Well, of course I have. But before we blast away at intolerance, I think we should distinguish between three different kinds of tolerance. I'm all for two of them, but I'm against the third. Sounds like you've thought about this before. Tell me about (laughs) intolerance. Well, the first kind of tolerance is legal tolerance, which means protecting everyone's rights to hold and express varying religious, political, and and other viewpoints. We should do whatever is necessary for, let's say, Buddhists and Muslims to, to be able to practice their religion here in this country. Agreed. No question. What's the second kind of tolerance? Well, the second kind of tolerance is social tolerance, which is the encouraging of respect for all persons, regardless of the views they hold or the customs they practice. If you believe, like I do, that every human being is made in the image of God and is of infinite value to God, then you not only tolerate all people, but actually value them, regardless of their views. Well, I really resonate with that, and it's encouraging to hear you take that position. So what kind of tolerance uh, can you not tolerate? (laughs) Well, the third kind is 
intellectual tolerance, which is the acceptance of every idea as being equally valid and actually a refusal to point out error, uh, to distinguish between truth and falsehood, right and wrong, the idea that everyone can create their own truth. Well, for instance? Well, there's some people who say the Holocaust never happened. Well, I believe a person ought to have the legal right to state that view, that we ought to treat the holder of that view with respect as a person and social tolerance. I believe it would be very dangerous to be intellectually tolerant of that wrong idea. We can attack an idea while still showing respect for the person. You mean uh, we can agree to disagree agreeably? Exactly. Jesus took social tolerance to a whole new level with the statement that we should love not only our friends, but our enemies. Yet that same Jesus made one of the most exclusive statements ever uttered. Wow, what was that? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are a lot of exclusive words for one short statement. Boy, I'll say. Bill, how do we know that he wasn't just talking about following his path or his teachings? Because he didn't say to follow his way or that his principles were the way. He said, I am the way. In another instance, he told the religious leaders that unless they believed in him as the promised Messiah, they would die unforgiven. Well, why does Jesus, as a human teacher and prophet, take so much on himself? Isn't that a bit... I want to be careful here. Uh, Isn't that egocentric to make those kinds of claims? It's only egocentric if it's a false claim, if he's not who he says he is. It's not egocentric for you to say that you were a pilot. It's simply a statement of fact. No brag at all. Well, I see your point, but isn't Jesus claiming an awful lot for himself? That's an understatement. As a matter of fact, Jesus claimed to be God in a human body. He made a series of I am statements. I am the living water. I'm the light of the world, the bread of life. He said that he was one with the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. He also claimed to forgive sins, not just the sins committed against him, but all sins, as though he was the one offended in all sins, as though this were his world and his rules. He said his death was voluntary and that his death would pay the penalty for the sins of everybody else. As C.S. Lewis said, if the Jesus who said this was not the God he claimed to be, then his words would imply a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in human history. Boy, I don't know where I've been all my life, but this idea of Jesus Christ claiming to be God himself, it's shocking to me. I don't think I've ever understood that before. I've always had a genuine respect for the wisdom of Jesus' teachings, and I've really had no doubt that he was a great teacher and a great prophet, but God himself? Well, the one thing we know is that Jesus could not have been merely a good teacher and prophet. What now? Well, he claimed to be God. He didn't just claim to be a teacher and a prophet. If he really is God, calling him a teacher and a prophet would be a patronizing insult and tantamount to a total rejection of his claim. If, on the other hand, he's not God, even though he said he was, then how could you call him a good prophet? Well, couldn't he have just been wrong on this God business, but right on the principles of how to live? Well, it seems to me that there are only a couple of logical possibilities. He claimed to be God, nothing less, and he must either be right or wrong. Okay, so far? Okay, so far so good. If he's right, then he's really God, not just a prophet. But what if he's wrong about being God? 
All right. If he's wrong, he either knew he was wrong or he didn't know he was wrong. Agreed? Hmm. Yeah. I guess it has to be one or the other. Okay. If he's wrong, if he's not God and he knew he was wrong, what does that make him? Well, he would be making a claim that he knew to be false, and you'd call him a liar. Exactly. Now, if he claimed to be God, and he was wrong about it, and he didn't realize he was wrong about it, what does that make him? Well, if he claimed to be God, and he really thought he was God, but he wasn't, then he would be a little off. He'd be crazy. Not just a little crazy. He'd be an absolute lunatic. I mean, it's not just a minor mistake or an inconsequential portion of his teaching. He made himself and his claim of deity the center of his teaching. Mar, if I made the kinds of claims that Jesus did, and I made those about myself, and if you thought I really believed it, but thought I was wrong, would you recommend people come and listen to my wonderful teachings? Well, no, hardly. Uh, But, Bill, let's slow down here. I don't mind telling you that I'm a bit overwhelmed by this discussion. It's it's almost too much to absorb. Uh, I, I think I need some time. Again, I I do see the logic and the rationale of what you're saying, but uh, it seems like there's a lot on the line, and there are many questions racing through my mind. I have always felt like, you know, any path would get you there as long as you were sincere, and and now that seems a little uh, naive and simplistic to me. I guess I'm feeling a bit confused, and I, I need a little time to sort this thing out in my mind. I understand completely. These are huge issues. But I'm not sure it's all that complex. There really is such a thing as real truth to be discovered. Everything is not relative. Just because someone is sincere, that doesn't mean their view is right, because truth doesn't equal sincerity. And truth is narrow. We ought to be kind and tolerant and respectful to all people. But we have a responsibility to reject falsehood and seek the truth. I think the big question for you, Lamar, is who do you think Jesus is? Well, I guess I can't get away with my old, easy, standard, good teacher type answer anymore. And I sure don't like the liar or crazy man answers. But God? I'd have to see some pretty powerful evidence to be able to buy that one, Bill. Well, I think you're absolutely right to demand evidence. But what about the evidence for his resurrection? If he predicted his own death and resurrection and actually pulled it off, wouldn't that be enough evidence? Yeah, I guess it would. I guess it would have to be. You know, you recommended a chapter in a book by uh, Josh McDowell on evidence for the resurrection. Yeah, it's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Yeah, that's it. I must admit, I read it pretty fast, and that was a couple of months ago. Maybe I need to dig that out and go over it again. You might also look at the section in there on prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. That's an important piece of the puzzle, too. Yeah, I know we talked about the prophecies before, but uh, I've slept a few times since then. Uh, Could you give me a quick refresher? Well, scores of predictions were made in the Hebrew Scriptures about the coming of the Messiah, which were perfectly fulfilled by Jesus, even though the prophecies were foretold hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Things like his family lineage, his place of birth, events surrounding his birth, the fact that he'd be rejected by his own people, his arrest, crucifixion, his resurrection, and all those with remarkable details. Okay, that helps. I do need to do my homework on this, though. Bill, I can't tell you how much I appreciate being able to have these conversations with you. I've never been able to talk like this with someone where I wasn't afraid that the other person would treat me like a leper because of my doubts and questions or where I might even be afraid of hurting their faith or causing them doubts. 
Oh my goodness, they've scored again. Have you noticed that we're losing four to nothing? No, I have lost total track of this game. How do those Yankees keep coming up with contenders? It must be uh, George Steinbrenner and, of course, a few gazillion dollars he's willing to put on the table. (laughs) 